Welcome back to The Good, The Bad and The Bogus. This is David Free. Okay, today I'm going to be talking about Woody Allen. Naturally, I don't mean that I'll be talking about Woody Allen, the comedian and filmmaker and writer. I mean that I'll be talking about Woody Allen, the alleged pedophile. One day I'd like to be able to devote a podcast to the man's work, but let's face it, if we're ever going to be able to talk freely again about Woody Allen's achievements as an artist, we're first going to have to sort and sift our way through the Matterhorn of rubble that his reputation is currently buried under. We really do need to work out, once and for all, whether this guy is or is not a child molester. For my part, I doubt I could have much of an ongoing relationship with Woody Allen's work if I thought there was convincing evidence that he really did do what he's been accused of doing. I would certainly have trouble laughing at his jokes. In fact, I have trouble laughing at his jokes even now, simply because the stink of this accusation is hanging over him. It's a serious charge, and it deserves to be talked about in a serious way, with careful reference to all the available evidence. And frankly, the evidence against Alan had better be good. Alan had better be guilty of this offence, because a huge chunk of the world's population seems to have decided that he is. That means that if Woody Allen didn't do this thing, the man has suffered an appalling injustice. He's not in prison or anything, of course. He's free to walk the streets. But if he was in prison, he could at least look forward to one day getting out. As things stand, Woody Allen is still technically free to make his films and write his books, but his ability to get his work published and distributed is steadily being eroded. His most recent film, A Rainy Day in New York, was dropped by Amazon, which had signed a distribution deal with Alan earlier in the decade, and the movie sat on the shelf for two years before its director could find another company that was willing to release it in America. Actors have stopped wanting to appear in his films. This is a man who had always relied on being able to get the world's best performers to work with him for next to no money, because appearing in a film by Woody Allen was the dream job for any self-respecting actor. Well, it isn't anymore. These days when Alan calls, actors don't pick up the phone. His reputation has been horribly tarnished by this accusation and it may never recover. He's being erased from history before our eyes. So if he didn't do what he's been accused of doing, the culture is currently doing a terrible thing to him. And we're also doing a terrible thing to ourselves. It's possible that Woody Allen is a kind of canary down the coal mine of our civilization. His case may offer clinching and horrifying proof that the current craze for what people call social justice has got nothing to do with actual justice at all. It's got nothing to do with letting the facts shape our conclusions and everything to do with saying and thinking what is currently deemed to be the correct thing. And if facts no longer matter, we might as well stop pretending that they do. If justice is no longer about evidence, if it's just about punishing the people we feel to be evil, we're the Taliban. One thing we should never forget about the Taliban is that, although they're wrong, they have no doubt in the world that they're right, especially in the moral sense. So what I want to do today is talk clearly about the facts and history of the Woody Allen case. This might take me a while, but if we're going to boot this man out of polite society for good, the least we should do first is take a 90-minute detour through the evidence. I'm sick of people who think they can say all that needs to be said about this case by delivering a self-satisfied one-liner in a press interview or on Twitter, so I want this podcast to be like an anti-tweet. I want to talk about all the evidence in this case, the good, the bad and the ugly. And one reason it's going to take me a while is that there turns out to be quite a lot of high-quality evidence available to us here. If you think this is a simple matter of weighing Woody Allen's word against the word of his alleged victim, you're dead wrong. Since I want to talk about this case as candidly as I possibly can, I'd better be clear up front about what I believe and what I don't believe. I don't believe Woody Allen did it. I think he's been stitched up. I think he's been unjustly condemned by a confederacy of moral dunces. I think this whole story is a scandal and a disgrace. But I don't believe these things just because I like Woody Allen's work. I believe them because I've looked carefully at the evidence, and this is what the evidence compels me to believe. 
To be honest, when I set out to do this podcast, it had been a while since I'd looked at the details of the alleged case against Alan. I remembered enough about the facts to have about an 80-20 sense that he was innocent, and all I intended to say was that although everybody now seems to think they know this man is guilty, the evidence gives us no warrant to be so sure. I was going to say, maybe we'll never know the truth about this case. But after burrowing back into the evidence, I can now see that that would have been a lazy thing to say. And more importantly, it wouldn't have been true. Because a funny thing happens when you drill down on the facts of this case. If Alan was guilty, you would expect the evidence against him to keep looking stronger the closer you look at it. But as we'll see, the opposite happens. The closer you look at the supposed evidence of Alan's guilt, the weaker it seems. It melts into the air. There's almost no piece of evidence in this case that doesn't look better for Alan the closer you look at it. It isn't just that the evidence against him is thin. There's actually a lot of evidence here that positively indicates that the man is innocent. Certainly you don't have any call to be afraid of the evidence if you set out to make the case for Alan's innocence. You only need to be afraid of the cultural backlash. With Alan's prosecutors or persecutors, it's the other way around. It doesn't take any courage to run with the herd and smugly say that you believe Alan's accuser. But the people who say that do have cause to be afraid of the evidence, which may be why they tend not to talk about it at all. The first thing we need to be clear about, if we're going to talk about this mess accurately, is that the whole claim that Woody Allen is a child abuser comes down to a single alleged act committed on a single alleged occasion. Straight away we have to admit that this seems unusual. One thing we surely know about men who sexually abuse children is that they don't tend to do it just once, and they don't tend to start doing it when they are 56 years of age, as Alan was when he allegedly committed this offence. Of course, these considerations by themselves don't mean that Alan didn't do it. Maybe his offence lies on the unusual end of the spectrum. And of course, a single offence would be far more than enough if the allegation does turn out to be true. But my point is that if this lone allegation isn't true, then the whole notion that Alan is a child molester goes away. Of course, Alan's detractors like to muddy the waters by telling you that he's always had a thing for borderline underage women, and that evidence of this obsession is strewn throughout his work. Maybe that's true and maybe it's not, but either way, it's a completely different thing from grotesquely forcing yourself on a seven-year-old child. So we need to use our heads here and keep these two things separate. We may not like the fact that Woody Allen has a liking, or used to have a liking, for consenting adult women a lot younger than himself, but that isn't a crime, although it seems that a lot of people would like it to be. On the other hand, it is a crime to sexually abuse a seven-year-old child. Woody Allen either committed that crime or he didn't. If he didn't, then all his other misdemeanours or alleged misdemeanours or perceived misdemeanours are completely irrelevant. The crime we're talking about was alleged to have occurred on August the 4th, 1992, at a place called Frog Hollow, which was the Connecticut country house of Alan's estranged partner, Mia Farrow. The alleged victim was Alan's adopted daughter, Dylan, who had just turned seven. So what exactly did Alan allegedly do? In 2014, when Dylan Farrow was 29, she described the alleged incident in the following way. Quote, When I was seven years old, Woody Allen took me by the hand and led me into a dim, closet-like attic on the second floor of our house. He told me to lay on my stomach and play with my brother's electric train set. Then he sexually assaulted me. To be specific, Dylan Farrow claims that Allen, quote, touched my labia and my vulva with his finger. He talked to me while he did it, whispering that I was a good girl, that this was our secret, promising that we'd go to Paris and I'd be a star in his movies. In 2018, when the Me Too movement was at its height, Dylan Farrow appeared on American TV and repeated this story on camera for the first time. You can watch the footage of her appearance online. It's fair to say that she's a credible-seeming witness. She gives every appearance of really believing what she says. And it's very tempting to just believe her and leave it at that. After all, it's rare for somebody to say they're a victim of sexual abuse when they're not. 
Speaking for myself, I certainly don't make a habit of disbelieving women or children who say that they've been sexually assaulted. On the contrary, I tend to believe them. In fact, I'd be willing to accept for the sake of argument that 99 out of 100 accusations of child sexual abuse are legitimate. No doubt that figure is higher than the true one, but let's accept it for the sake of argument. The question is, do we have any special reasons to suspect that this might be one of those one in a hundred cases where the allegation isn't true? And the answer is that we absolutely do have special reasons to suspect that. Before I get into those reasons, though, I want to throw out an important qualification. If I end up saying that I don't believe Dylan Farrow's story is true, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm saying she's a liar. As everybody knows, or should know, this charge against Woody Allen arose at a time when his 12-year relationship with the actress Mia Farrow was falling apart under extremely bitter and acrimonious circumstances. Circumstances that were largely Woody Allen's fault, it has to be said. And there are compelling reasons to believe that in the heat of this very weird and complicated family moment, the seven-year-old Dylan Farrow was encouraged to say that her father sexually abused her when he really didn't. And it's possible, even probable, that she has since come to believe sincerely that this phantom assault really did happen. In other words, this looks to be a case where a false accusation might have subsequently established itself as a false memory. I'm not pulling this suggestion out of the ether, by the way. There are people who were there at the time who believe that this is exactly what has happened. For example, here's a quote from Moses Farrow, Dylan's older brother. Moses was 14 at the time of the alleged assault, and in 2014, at the age of 40, he wrote a long online essay in which he laid out his thoughts about Dylan's accusation. I'm a very private person, Moses wrote, but given the incredibly misleading and inaccurate attacks on my father Woody Allen, I feel that I can no longer stay silent as he continues to be condemned for a crime he did not commit. What breaks my heart the most, Moses Farrow has said, is that while I know that my sister Dylan believes what she says, I also know from my own experience that it simply never happened. End quote. In his essay about the case, Moses Farrow explains precisely why he believes that the alleged assault never happened, and I'll be coming back to his account later. But for the moment, I'm quoting him to underline the point that it's possible to believe Woody Allen is innocent without necessarily suggesting that his accuser is a liar. Of course, you do feel a bit like you're inching out onto a kind of tightrope when you dare to wonder out loud if Dylan Farrow's claim of abuse is objectively true. Or maybe it's not so much a tightrope as a gangplank. The moment you start talking about this case, even in private, you feel this distinct pressure to say the right thing. And we all know what the right thing to say here is. The right thing to say is that you believe the victim, or the purported victim. If you say that, you can't go wrong, at least in a social sense. You won't be required to explain yourself or prove your case or establish that you have the slightest idea what you're talking about. People will leave you alone, and you can get on with your life. Presuming guilt is the easy and safe option here. It's the default position. And when a society thinks it's okay to start presuming guilt instead of presuming innocence, that's surely a clear sign that it's beginning to lose its way. Believe the victim. That's the mantra. Believe the victim. It's amazing how many people mistake this for a meaningful statement. It's amazing how many people seem to believe that justice would magically be done across the board if only everybody agreed to believe all victims. But of course this is infantile nonsense, and it sums up the almost suicidal stupidity of the current cultural moment. The whole question here is whether Dylan Farrow was really the victim of a sexual assault at all. Maybe she was. Let's see what the evidence says. But if it turns out that she wasn't, that means that the victim of this scandal is in fact Woody Allen. So by all means, let's side with the victim. But let's make sure first that we know who the victim is. By all means, let's listen to what Dylan Farrow says and let's take her allegation seriously. But part of taking people seriously is checking whether what they say corresponds to reality. We should always be wary of anybody, no matter how pure his or her motives seem to be, 
who tells us that we don't need to worry our heads about things like evidence. But of course, a puritanical contempt for hard fact is the latest trend in cutting-edge thought, which is precisely why this 27-year-old charge against Woody Allen is now enjoying such a fierce renaissance. Over the last few years, this allegation has been fairly cynically rebooted and repackaged, and it's now being pitched at a generation that's not only too young to have heard the evidence the first time around, but it's also full of people who've been encouraged to believe that it's wicked even to think about evidence in cases like this. I've said that you feel a bit like you're walking out onto a tightrope when you dare to explore the possibility that Woody Allen is innocent. But that's true only in the social sense, only in the sense that that's what other people want you to feel. Empirically, you've got nothing to fear if you walk forward into the proposition that Allen is innocent. If you look down at your feet, you'll find that you're not standing on a tightrope after all, but on a very solid expanse of evidence. Really, it's the people who say Alan is guilty who are out on the tightrope. All that's under their feet is a single allegation from a single person, which frankly looks more and more flimsy the closer you look at it. Another notion that I want to resist here is the idea that if you dare to scrutinise Dylan Farrow's story, and if you dare to conclude that it's dubious, that means you're somehow saying that every other claim of child sexual abuse is dubious too. Again, this is a brain-dead argument, which means that you encounter it frequently on social media. There are a handful of brave actors and writers who have stood up for Woody Allen in public. I'll mention some of their names later on. But I have seen these people denounced on places like Twitter as quote-unquote victim-blamers. They've been informed that by defending Woody Allen, they're sending a message to all victims of sexual assault that their words don't matter, and that they might as well not come forward because nobody will believe them. This line of argument isn't just palpably illogical. It seems to me to offer clear proof that the priorities of the social justice Stasi have got nothing to do with actual justice at all. If actual justice is to be done, we have to do it on a case-by-case basis. We have to treat every allegation of criminal behaviour on its particular merits, including this one. If actual justice is to be done... The idea that we must simply believe every single allegation of sexual assault is no great improvement on the idea that we should simply disbelieve every single allegation of sexual assault. And the idea that we can't talk about this case without talking about all other cases at the same time throws a huge and unnecessary cloud over our ability to be precise here. In any case, I'm going to proceed on the assumption that people who raise such objections are half-witted ideologues who don't deserve to be listened to. When I talk about this case, I'm talking about this case and this case only. I'm not saying anything at all about any other case or allegation of sexual abuse. I do find it instructive, though, that Alan's detractors are unwilling to maintain a similar focus. They seem to be unable to talk about the particulars of this case for more than 10 consecutive seconds without pivoting to some adjacent topic or some broader theme. This seems to be fundamental to their style. They claim to be talking about Woody Allen, but before you know it, they're talking about Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein or Roman Polanski, or they're talking about systemic sexism or the breakthroughs of the Me Too movement. I've heard it said that Allen is a powerful man, indeed a powerful white man, who somehow used his awesome structural power to make this allegation go away. No doubt believing that Alan's a powerful man makes it a lot easier to treat him cruelly and unfairly. But when I look at Alan right now, I can't say that I do see a powerful man. No doubt he's a fairly wealthy man who used to have a certain amount of influence, but he wasn't born into wealth or privilege. He earned his wealth by being, and I fear that I might show my age when I use this word, by being talented. As for power and whiteness, what I see when I look at Woody Allen now is a frail Jewish man in his 80s whom it is now very cool to hate and revile. When I look at the way the mob has turned on him, I get visceral flashbacks to the schoolyard. Alan is the weakest kid in the playground, and everyone knows that there's no percentage in sticking up for him. He's a leper. He's on the nose. The percentage play is to put the boot into him, like all the popular kids are doing 
who've never had an original thought in their lives. I think we should resist these schoolyard urges. And by the way, when I say we, I mean all of us in the English-speaking world. These puritanical thought crazes might originate in America, but they're horribly contagious. So unfortunately, it isn't just America's business if America decides that it's going to commit moral and intellectual suicide on the Woody Allen question and on other questions like it. It's everybody else's business too. There seems to be a sense in the air now that Woody Allen cheated justice when this charge against him was first levelled back in 1992. There's a sense that the young Dylan Farrow was never listened to, which is why it's incumbent on every right-thinking herd moralist to listen to her now. But the truth is that when this accusation was first made, it was taken very seriously by all the relevant authorities and was investigated by agencies in two separate jurisdictions, Connecticut and New York. In Connecticut, the scene of the alleged crime, the police followed protocol by referring the matter to the Child Sexual Abuse Clinic at Yale New Haven Hospital, whose job it was to advise the local state's attorney about the veracity of Dylan's claim. The Yale New Haven team consisted of three appropriately qualified experts, a paediatrician and two social workers, who proceeded to conduct a six-month investigation into the allegation. They interviewed Dylan Farrow nine times, they interviewed Mia Farrow ten times, and they interviewed Woody Allen three times. They also interviewed a babysitter who had been present on the day of the alleged incident. And here is what the Yale team concluded in its written report. Quote, It is our expert opinion that Dylan was not sexually abused by Mr. Allen. Further, we believe that Dylan's statements on videotape and her statements to us during our evaluation do not refer to actual events that occurred to her on August the 4th, 1992. End quote. While we let that verdict sink in, it's worth pausing here to say something about the nature of proof, and indeed about the nature of truth itself. Generally speaking, it's very hard to prove a negative, to prove definitively that something did not happen. This is one of the reasons why at a criminal trial, the defendant isn't required to prove innocence. It's up to the prosecution to prove guilt and prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. The only job of the defense attorney is to obtain a verdict of not guilty by showing that the prosecution hasn't proven its case. The criminal justice system was designed by people who recognized, among other things, that it's not fair or reasonable to ask an accused person to prove his or her innocence. But when the Yale experts examined the allegation against Woody Allen, that rare standard, proof of innocence, was effectively achieved. The authors of the Yale report didn't just say, you shouldn't prosecute this man because the evidence is thin and because it will be the word of a seven-year-old girl against the word of a grown man. They said that the evidence against Allen was non-existent. I'll quote their verdict again. It is our expert opinion that Dylan was not sexually abused by Mr. Allen. Further, we believe that Dylan's statements on videotape and her statements to us during our evaluation do not refer to actual events that occurred to her on August the 4th, 1992. This is gold standard exoneration. In a legal context, you almost never hear someone definitively say that an alleged crime simply did not occur. But the members of the Yale team were ready to say that, because the only indication that a crime had occurred was that a seven-year-old girl said that it had, and that girl, in their expert opinion, was not telling the truth. What made them so sure of that? For one thing, they observed that her story was inconsistent. It kept changing. And those were not minor inconsistencies, one of the report's authors clarified later. She told us initially that she hadn't been touched in the vaginal area, and then she told us that she had, then she told us that she hadn't. Also, the Yale team noted in its report that, quote, a rehearsed quality was suggested in how she spoke. It seemed likely, the team concluded, that Dylan had been, quote, coached or influenced by her mother. Here's what the leader of the Yale team said later on in a sworn deposition. Quote, it's quite possible, as a matter of fact we think it's medically probable, that she stuck to that story over time 
because of the intense relationship she had with her mother. End quote. After the Yale team had delivered its report, the Connecticut State's Attorney for Litchfield County announced that Woody Allen would not be prosecuted. But when he announced that decision to the press, the prosecutor said something strange, which is sometimes quoted by Allen's detractors. He said that he was declining to prosecute Allen despite the fact that he had found, quote, probable cause to believe that a crime had been committed. On the face of it, that remark sounds bad for Woody Allen. Let's file it away for the moment. I'll come back to it later when I discuss some of the talking points that Allen's critics tend to raise on those rare occasions when they deign to discuss the historical record at all. In the meantime, we need to know that while the Yale experts were going about their business, the New York Department of Social Services was conducting a separate investigation into the allegation against Allen. Their inquiry went on for 14 months, and in the end, the New York investigators concluded that, quote, no credible evidence was found that the child named in this report has been abused or maltreated. This report has therefore been considered unfounded. End quote. To summarise then, by the end of 1993, two separate teams of child welfare experts in two separate jurisdictions had examined Dylan Farrow's claim that Woody Allen had sexually assaulted her. One of those investigations lasted for six months, the other lasted for 14. One team concluded that the charge was unfounded because it found no credible evidence that it was true, and the other team went further and signed off on the positive conclusion that Dylan Farrow's claim did not refer to actual events and that she was not sexually abused. As far as the criminal case against Woody Allen was concerned, that was that. Allen has never been prosecuted for the offence that everybody now seems so sure he committed because the evidence didn't even rise to the level where he could be prosecuted. The only time the abuse allegation was ever ventilated in a court of law was in 1993, when Allen unsuccessfully sued Mia Farrow to gain custody of their three children, including Dylan. But that was a custody trial rather than a criminal prosecution. I'll be talking about that trial in a moment, but part of me wonders if I should. Maybe I'd be better off ending the podcast right now, so that I don't convey the impression that this case is more complicated than it really is. I said at the start of the episode that we need to be able to work out once and for all whether or not this man's a child molester, and the fact is we have worked it out. He isn't one. Back in 1993, when the evidence was as fresh as it would ever be, two separate teams of child welfare experts found that Alan had no case to answer. If there had been just one investigation that reached that conclusion, that would surely have been enough. But in Alan's case, we had two. And it's not as if any other similarly qualified team of experts has re-examined the case in the years since and come to some different conclusion. Everyone else who has weighed in on the case since then has been a pseudo-expert by comparison, and they've all been at least one degree of separation away from the best evidence. So really, it should have been game over for the Woody Allen as pedophile story back in 1993, when the Connecticut and New York investigators delivered their reports. But for some reason, the verdicts of those investigators have failed to stick. The fact of Allen's vindication hasn't been permitted to sink in. And this strikes me as a big worry. Because if two inquiries are not enough for people, then exactly how many would be enough? Three? Seven? Ten? What possible evidence is Alan going to be able to produce in the future to clear his name if the verdicts of those impartial experts in 1993 didn't do the trick? The awful answer seems to be, there's nothing he'll ever be able to do to clear his name. What the culture seems to be saying here is that no amount of hard evidence will ever be enough to get an accused man off the hook as long as there's a lone accuser who sticks to his or her guns. Which means, in effect that we seem to have decided that objective evidence doesn't matter at all anymore. It's no longer a thing. And due process doesn't count if enough people don't like the results of it. As a consequence, Woody Allen seems doomed to remain stuck forever in a kind of reputational purgatory. He's marooned in a Kafka novel he can't get out of. Remember the first sentence of the trial. Somebody must have made a false accusation against Joseph K., for he was arrested one morning without having done anything wrong. 
At the very least, the verdicts of those expert teams back in 1993 mean that the burden of proof in this case now rests heavily on the shoulders of all those people who are currently so sure of Alan's guilt that they feel entitled to drum him out of the culture and shame everyone who's ever worked with him and make publishers stop publishing his books and make film schools stop teaching his films. These people seem awfully fucking sure that Alan is guilty, but they really do need to explain how they know this. They need to tell us what they know that the experts from Yale didn't know in 1993 when they concluded that Dylan Farrow's story about Woody Allen did not refer to actual events. And if the members of the online star chamber don't know anything new, and they don't, they need to explain why they're qualified to reject the verdicts of two teams of trained professionals whose whole job it was to evaluate allegations of this kind. Remember, those trained professionals were at least as aware as the average random Yahoo on Twitter that victims of child sexual abuse can be reluctant to tell their stories and can change their stories over time, and so on. The clinicians at Yale New Haven Hospital knew all that, thanks, but even though they knew it, they still found that Dylan Farrow's story wasn't credible. They found that her story was inconsistent in unusual ways, in suspicious ways. Broadly speaking, there are two kinds of people who believe in Woody Allen's guilt. There are those who know absolutely nothing about the evidence at all and think everything can be resolved by simply believing the alleged victim. And then there are the people who do talk about the evidence of the case, but talk about it in a fragmentary or misleading way. I hate to say it, but Dylan Farrow herself has sometimes been known to do this. If all she did in her public pronouncements was just repeat her claim that Woody Allen assaulted her when she was seven, then it would be impossible to argue with her, and even a bit impertinent. But she doesn't just do that. Sometimes she talks about things that are a matter of public record. She makes empirical claims that we can check up on for ourselves. And when you do check up on those claims, you find that Dylan Farrow can sometimes be, I hate to use this word, a little bit unreliable. For example, she has asserted that the Yale New Haven report was questionable, because, quote, the author of that report never interviewed me. Now, that certainly sounds like a substantial criticism of the Yale report, but how substantial is it really? The truth is that the Yale team had three members, one male and two female. Their report was signed by the head of the team, whose name was Dr. John Leventhal, but the language of the report makes it clear that the text was the work of all three team members. So, while it may be technically true to say that the report had only one author, it's more than a little disingenuous to try to make any mileage out of that point. Similarly, it is true that Dr. Leventhal, the report's lead author and the only male member of the Yale team, didn't sit in on any of the interviews with Dylan. But why didn't he? Since the Yale Clinic doesn't comment about its work publicly for ethical reasons, we have no definitive pronouncement about why Leventhal didn't participate in those interviews, but the obvious inference is that he didn't participate precisely because he was a male. In any case, whatever the reason was for his absence, the fact remains that his two female colleagues interviewed Dylan nine times. So again, you do have to wonder precisely how many more experts would have needed to be present, and precisely how many more interviews they would have needed to conduct, before the adult Dylan Farrow would concede that the methodology of the Yale investigation was sound, as opposed to questionable. Would three experts conducting 12 interviews have been enough? How about four experts conducting 19 interviews? But there's no point in wondering. Obviously, Dylan Farrow calls the Yale report questionable because she doesn't like the conclusion that it came to. The fact that Dr. Leventhal didn't personally sit in on any of the interviews with her is not a meaningful or a decisive fact. It isn't the sort of fact that would cause a neutral and reasonable person to conclude that the Yale report was unreliable. It's a pseudo-argument, used by people who already believe Alan is guilty and need something that looks like evidence to shore up their case. And it's the same with all the other talking points that Alan's critics come up with when they appear to be addressing themselves to the factual record. To keep believing in Woody Allen's guilt, you have to swim against the tide of the evidence. You have to grab any piece of jetsam you can lay your hands on to make your case. 
As a couple of Woody Allen's supporters have pointed out, if Dr. Leventhal had sat in on those interviews with Dylan, you can bet your life that we would now be hearing that those interviews were questionable because there was an intimidating male in the room. The truth is, the Yale report was a devastating vindication for Woody Allen, and nobody has ever been able to prove that anything about it was materially invalid or untrue. Anyway, it's not as if the Yale report is the only evidence we have that Dylan's story about her father was a dubious one, which emerged after a period of priming and coaching from her mother. There's a fair amount of circumstantial evidence to support this conclusion. I wish I didn't have to go into it. It does feel a bit sordid and awkward to be sitting here in the year 2020, talking about how Mia Farrow back in the year 1992 either consciously or unconsciously helped to ferment a false allegation of child abuse. But the fact is, the Farrow family has recently made a deliberate decision to put this accusation back on our cultural radar. They want this case to be relitigated in the court of public opinion, and they seem to have gambled that people will be willing to convict Alan on their say-so, and will be too lazy or stupid to look at the evidence again, or for the first time. But if the Farrow family wants us to relitigate this case, let's at least relitigate it properly. Let's examine the evidence. And if the evidence looks bad for Mia Farrow, and I'm afraid that it does, well, that's her bad luck. It isn't Woody Allen who is insisting that we go back over this sorry episode again. It's Mia Farrow and her allies. So let's take a step back and remind ourselves of the context in which this allegation arose. Woody Allen and Mia Farrow became a couple in 1980. As is well known, they never lived together. For the duration of their 12-year relationship, Allen lived alone in his apartment on Fifth Avenue, while Farrow lived on Central Park West with her seven children, most of whom dated from her previous marriage to the conductor, Andre Previn. Four of these children were adopted. One of them was the soon-to-be notorious Sun Yi, whom Allen would later marry, and indeed is married to still. Contrary to popular belief, Woody Allen never acted as a father or even father figure to Sun Yi, or to any of the other older children whom Farrow had either adopted or given birth to prior to Allen's coming on the scene. In 1987, Woody and Mia had a biological son together named Satchel, who later changed his name to Ronan. To complicate things a little further, it was later rumoured that Ronan's true biological father wasn't Woody Allen at all, but Frank Sinatra, to whom Mia had been briefly married in the 1960s and with whom she remained on good terms even after she had taken up with Woody. In fact, you have to suspect that she remained on very good terms with Sinatra when you look at a photo of Sinatra next to a photo of the blue-eyed Ronan Farrow. And in recent years, both Mia and Ronan Farrow have more or less conceded that Woody was indeed not Ronan's true father. So in that respect at least, Mia Farrow was no saint. She appears to have let Woody Allen think that he was the biological father of a boy who was in fact sired by the chairman of the board. But, as Allen writes in his autobiography, his relationship with Mia had pretty much cooled off by that time anyway. We weren't in love, Allen writes, but we provided each other with reasonable companionship. Mind you, Woody Allen had by this time become increasingly attached to the youngest of Mia's adopted children, Moses and Dylan. He did act as a father figure to both of these children. He was especially fond of Dylan. And a lot of the behaviour that was later adduced as evidence of Allen's creepiness, such as the way he would read to Dylan in bed, could just as easily be seen as the behaviour of a doting father who had a perfectly normal loving relationship with his daughter. In December 1991, Alan formalised his relationship with Moses and Dylan by legally becoming their adoptive father. Moses was 13 at the time, and Dylan was 6. Just a month later, in January 1992, Mia Farrow found a batch of nude Polaroids of Sun Yi on the mantelpiece of Alan's apartment. She confronted him about it, and Alan admitted that he and Sun Yi had been having an affair. Alan was 56 years old at this point, and Sun Yi was around 21. There was some slight ambiguity about her age, since her birth mother had abandoned her when she was very young, and Farrow had adopted her from a South Korean orphanage when she was around six. 
Naturally, Mia Farrow was devastated and scandalised when she found out about their affair. Sun Yi may not have been Alan's daughter, but she was Farrow's. So when Woody and Sun Yi got together, Mia Farrow was betrayed by her boyfriend and her daughter simultaneously. By any standards, Woody's conduct here was nothing to write home about. In fact, this was what we call in Australia a bit of a dog act. Mia was thoroughly entitled to have some strong feelings about it, and the public wasn't all that impressed either. But in Alan's defence, it's only fair to point out that he and Sun Yi, despite the age difference, are still together now after almost 30 years, and they have two adopted children of their own, both girls, whom Alan clearly wouldn't have been permitted to adopt if the authorities thought there was even the slightest possibility that he was guilty of having molested his other adopted daughter. But back to 1992. It's important to remember that seven months elapsed between the day in January when Mia Farrow found the nude Polaroids of Sun Yi and the day in August when Alan allegedly abused Dylan. During that seven-month period, while the couple's lawyers negotiated about financial compensation and custody rights, Alan continued to visit Mia's Connecticut home to see his children under conditions that can only be called bizarre. In July, a month before the day of the alleged assault, there was an incident that we need to zero in on. It happened when Alan went to Frog Hollow to attend Dylan's seventh birthday party, after which he stayed the night. The next morning, he found a note pinned to his door. It was written in Mia Farrow's handwriting, and it said, quote, Child molester at birthday party, molded, then abused one sister, now focused on youngest sister. Family disgusted. End quote. Woody Allen kept this note, and Mia Farrow has never denied that she wrote it. And clearly, this note is a huge and noisily flapping red flag because it shows us that in Mia Farrow's mind, Alan's affair with Sun Yi was tantamount to an act of child abuse. Objectively, this wasn't true because Sun Yi was an adult when she and Alan began their affair, but you can sort of see why Mia Farrow saw things that way. And you can sort of see that if she later found herself accusing Alan of having molested his other daughter, in her mind, that would not quite be a lie, even if it was objectively untrue. In any case, what this note certainly does mean is that we have written proof, in fact, handwritten proof, that a month before the alleged molestation of Dylan, Mia Farrow already believed, wrongly, that Woody Allen was a child molester, and she was loudly announcing that he might soon start abusing Dylan. You can choose to believe, if you want to, that a month after receiving this graphic warning, Alan actually did go ahead and abuse Dylan for the first and only time. That's certainly one possibility. Alternatively, you can see the note as proof that a false accusation of molestation was already in the process of being constructed. By the way, when the Yale experts evaluated Dylan Farrow's accusation the following year, Dr. Leventhal noted that it was, quote, very striking that each time the young Dylan Farrow talked about Woody Allen's alleged abuse of her, she explicitly linked it with her father's relationship with Sun Yi. Anyway, Mia Farrow put everybody in her household on a state of high alert after she found out about Woody and Sun Yi. The older children and the Farrow family's assorted babysitters and domestic staff were all instructed to watch Alan like hawks when he was around Dylan. We know this from several independent sources. When Farrow's nanny was deposed for the custody hearing, she said, quote, Ms. Farrow set the stage to report the incident involving Dylan. For several weeks, Ms. Farrow insisted that Mr. Allen not be left alone with Dylan and wanted me to be with them at all times. End quote. And yet Mia Farrow herself, when Alan came to Frog Hollow on the day of the alleged assault, went out shopping with a friend of hers, whose name was Casey Pascal. This left Alan alone in the house with Dylan, Satchel, Moses, and with Casey Pascal's three children. There were three adults in the house too. Farrow's babysitter, Casey Pascal's babysitter, and a woman who tutored the Farrow children in French. Moses Farrow, who was 14 at the time, was the oldest of the Farrow children present in the house that day. Here's what he's written about the events of that afternoon. 
The quote comes from that long and very important blog post that he wrote about the case in 2014, when he was 40. Quote, As the man of the house that day, I had promised to keep an eye out for any trouble, and I was doing just that. I remember where Woody sat in the TV room, and I can picture where Dylan and Satchel were. Not that everybody stayed glued to the same spot, but I deliberately made sure to note everyone's coming and going. I do remember that Woody would leave the room on occasion, but never with Dylan. He would wander into another room to make a phone call, read the paper, use the bathroom, or step outside to get some air and walk around the large pond on the property. Along with five kids, there were three adults in the house, all of whom had been told for months what a monster Woody was. None of us would have allowed Dylan to step away with Woody, even if he tried. End quote. So, Woody Allen was sitting in the TV room with the children, watching a videotape of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and at some point in the proceedings, one of the three adults that Moses has just mentioned, these adults who had been forewarned about what a monster Allen was, one of them was passing the doorway of the TV room when she saw something that disturbed her. This woman's name was Alison Strickland. She was the nanny employed by Farrow's friend, Casey Pascal. And here's what she saw, according to testimony she gave at the custody hearing. Quote, I got to the doorway, and Mr. Allen was on his knees in front of Dylan, with his head in her lap. End quote. Now, this is an important piece of testimony for several reasons. For one thing, it was Strickland's chance sighting of this incident, or this perceived incident, that got the ball rolling on the whole abuse allegation. That evening after leaving the house, Strickland mentioned what she'd seen to her employer, Casey Pascal, and the next morning, Pascal telephoned Mia Farrow and told her. Farrow then proceeded to ask Dylan what had happened, and out of their conversations, the allegation of the abuse in the attic emerged. Another important point about Alison Strickland's testimony is that this is the only time an independent adult witness claims to have seen Alan doing something inappropriate that day. If you tend to think Alan is innocent, as I do, you have to admit that this piece of evidence is a concern. It needs to be weighed. Was what Strickland saw as bad as it sounds? Or did she see something harmless and mistake it for something worse because she'd been primed to believe that Alan was a pedophile. Since Strickland saw the incident and we didn't, we can't know for sure. But we can use our heads and think about the evidence rationally. If Strickland thought at the time that she was witnessing a straight-up act of abuse, she would surely have done something about it then and there. The fact that she didn't tell her employer about it until later that evening suggests that she was troubled, but not that troubled. Or, as she put it herself during the custody trial, Quote, I told her I'd seen something at Mia's that day that was bothering me. End quote. Also, we need to remember that Woody Allen, at that time, was well aware that Mia Farrow had been going around telling people that he was a child molester and a probable re-offender. If he really did choose that day to actually become a child molester, would he really have done the deed on a couch in the TV room? Here's what Moses Farrow has to say about the TV room incident. Quote, Casey's nanny, Allison, would later claim that she walked into the TV room and saw Woody kneeling on the floor with his head in Dylan's lap on the couch. Really? With all of us in there? And if she had witnessed that, why wouldn't she have said something immediately to our nanny, Christy? End quote. Like everything in this story, the head in the lap thing seems less and less bad for Alan the closer you look at it and the more you think about it. I don't want to labour this point, but this does keep happening in this case, and it really shouldn't keep happening if Alan is guilty. If he was guilty, you'd expect the evidence against him to look stronger on inspection, not weaker. And there's one final thing we need to remember here as we weigh this part of the story up, and that is that Dylan herself doesn't allege that Alan molested her in the TV room. She says it happened in the attic. According to Moses Farrow, this ambiguity about the scene of the alleged crime is significant. He writes, quote, I also remember some discussion of this act perhaps taking place on the staircase that led to Mia's room. Again, this would have been in full view of anyone who entered the living room, 
assuming Woody managed to walk off with Dylan in the first place. The narrative had to be changed, Moses goes on, since the only place for anyone to commit an act of depravity in private would have been in a small crawl space of my mother's upstairs bedroom. By default, the attic became the scene of the alleged assault. End quote. Anyway, whatever happened in the TV room, the fact remains that Alison Strickland was concerned enough about what she saw to mention it to her boss later that night. Her boss phoned Mia. Mia began quizzing Dylan. And as she quizzed her, the story about the incident in the attic either came to light, or if you prefer, was coaxed into existence. Mia then rang her attorney and told him about the accusation that Dylan had supposedly made. The attorney advised Mia to take Dylan to the family doctor, but Mia had to take Dylan to the doctor twice before she would repeat the allegation. The first time when the doctor asked Dylan where Woody had touched her, she pointed to her shoulder. Only when Mia took her back the next day did Dylan tell the doctor that Alan had touched her genital area. The doctor then referred the allegation to the police, as he was legally obliged to do. Around now, Mia Farrow started to videotape a series of conversations with Dylan, during which she encouraged the child to tell her exactly what Alan had done. A copy of the resulting videotape would later be leaked to the press, but it has never been seen by the public. We do, though, have testimony about the contents of the tape from various witnesses and experts who have seen it. The Yale experts wrote that Dylan's statements on videotape do not refer to actual events that occurred to her on August the 4th, 1992. Farrow's nanny was present when some of the scenes on the tape were shot, and she said in a sworn deposition, quote, I know that the tape was made over the course of at least two and perhaps three days. I was present when Ms. Farrow made a portion of that tape. I recall Ms. Farrow saying to Dylan at that time, Dylan, what did Daddy do, and what did he do next? Dylan appeared not to be interested, and Miss Farrow would stop taping for a while and then continue. End quote. At the custody trial, expert witnesses for both sides testified that the tape showed evidence of coaching. One of Woody Allen's experts testified that the tape was full of leading questions. To me, that smacks of prompting, he said of one exchange. And Mia Farrow's own expert testified that Mia's questioning quote, set a tone for a child about how to answer. I think it could raise anxieties of a child, end quote. Before we talk any more about the custody trial, we should first be clear that it was Woody Allen himself who filed that suit, thereby ensuring that the sexual abuse charge would be scrutinized in a court of law. Would he really have been reckless enough to do that if he actually had sexually abused Dylan? I suppose it's possible, but I doubt it. I find myself having to use that phrase a lot in this case. I suppose it's possible, but I doubt it. Also, to understand why Alan sued for custody, we need to know about a few things that immediately preceded his decision. He filed his suit exactly a week after hearing that he'd been accused of abusing Dylan, and there had been some very interesting legal negotiations during that week. Mia's lawyers had called Woody's lawyers to a meeting and they had made it plain that if Woody agreed to fork over a large lump sum of child support money, the figure of $7 million was mentioned, then Mia would agree in return not to make Dylan available as a witness in the Connecticut police investigation, which would mean that her allegation against Alan would never have to be made public. Mia's lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, would later strenuously deny that this was an exercise in extortion, Mind you, he didn't deny that his team had floated the idea of Alan's paying Mia a large lump sum, but that option had been proposed, said Dershowitz, so that the parties wouldn't have to go on communicating with each other in the future to organise ongoing compensation. It would be just one payment, and it would all be over. But for some strange reason, Alan's side did choose to view this as an extortion attempt, and they rejected the proposal. That's when Alan launched his legal proceedings to try to gain custody of his three children, that is Moses, Dylan and Satchel, on the grounds that they were living in an unhealthy environment. All this is well worth remembering, because these days the Farrow family likes to push the idea that Woody Allen is this Weinstein or Cosby-like monster who has dodged justice for decades. 
and yet Mia's lawyers back in 1992 had offered to let the whole thing slide for a price. Which strikes me as a very strange thing to do if you believe that a man is a child molester who is presumably likely to go on molesting other children in the future. Incidentally, all this was widely reported in the press at the time. It's no great secret. Alan Dershowitz thought and publicly said that Woody Allen was crazy not to have taken up Mia on her generous offer. Here's what Dershowitz said on the Charlie Rose show on the 14th of October 1992, after Allen had filed his custody suit. Quote, I thought people would have the good sense to sit down and resolve it quietly and privately. I don't think it ever had to come out. If he had not filed that suit, I don't think anybody would know the story today, and I think it would be resolved quietly behind the scenes. End quote. Much as I would like to disagree with Dershowitz, I have to say that I'm torn about whether Woody Allen made the correct decision back in 1992. On the one hand, I'm tempted to say that he was damn lucky he did sue for custody, because that decision ensured that the seven-year-old Dylan was made available to the authorities in Connecticut while her story was still fresh, so that her reliability could be assessed at the time by appropriately trained experts who concluded that her claim had no basis in reality. On the other hand, nobody these days seems to remember that or give a shit about it, so maybe Alan would have been better off forking over the $7 million and hoping that the allegation would never come to light. By the way, a week or two after he'd been accused of molesting Dylan, Alan voluntarily sat for a polygraph test and passed it. His lawyers challenged Mia Farrow to take one too, but she never did. A few days after he launched his custody suit, Woody Allen held a famous press conference in New York. Footage of this can easily be found online. Allen told reporters that he emphatically denied having abused Dylan. He also revealed that a day after being accused of molesting her, he had been accused of molesting four-year-old Satchel as well. As Allen observed, quote, This last allegation has quietly vanished, I suppose because its substance was too insane even for the instigator to stay with. End quote. And of course, in the subsequent decades, this little detail seems to have been forgotten altogether. But it's another fact that needs to be remembered and added to the scales, because it gives us even more reason to suspect that very serious allegations about Woody Allen were being tossed around pretty gaily and irresponsibly at that time. I suppose you could believe that, although one of those allegations was false and was swiftly withdrawn and forgotten, the other one was completely true. Again, I find that very hard to believe. And again, I have to observe that the things that are very hard to believe keep piling up in this case, unless you're willing to slice through all these mounting improbabilities by acknowledging that Alan just didn't do this. The custody hearing began in March 1993, and the judge wound up ruling against Alan. Not because he concluded that Alan was guilty of sexually abusing his daughter, but because he felt that, quote, Mr. Allen has displayed no parenting skills that would qualify him as an adequate custodian for Moses, Dylan, or Satchel, end quote. The judge, whose name was Elliot Wilk, also ruled that Allen's custody suit was frivolous, and he ordered Allen to pay Mia Farrow's legal costs. The report of the Yale New Haven Sexual Abuse Clinic was completed by the time the custody trial began, so Justice Wilk was able to consider its conclusions before making his ruling. Here's what he had to say about the sexual abuse question. Quote, The evidence suggests that it is unlikely that Allen could be successfully prosecuted for sexual abuse. I am less certain, however, than is the Yale New Haven team, that the evidence proves conclusively that there was no sexual abuse. End quote. That last sentence is frequently quoted by Allen's detractors. But notice that all Wilk says there is that he is, quote, less certain than the Yale experts that sexual abuse did not occur, which of course is a far cry from saying that it did occur. Notice too that Wilk had just stipulated a sentence earlier that, quote, the evidence suggests that it is unlikely he could be prosecuted successfully for sexual abuse. So Allen's detractors clearly don't have many good cards in their hand if this is one of the best cards they can play. Quoting a judge who says he's less certain than the qualified experts are that sexual abuse did not occur. Mind you, it's clear that Justice Wilk didn't like Woody Allen. 
And there's another sentence from his ruling that certainly does sound very damaging to Alan, especially when it's quoted out of context. And that sentence is, quote, Mr. Allen's behavior toward Dylan was grossly inappropriate and measures must be taken to protect her, end quote. This is another piece of evidence that certainly should give us pause if we're inclined to think Alan is innocent. If he's innocent, why would a judge have said that his conduct toward Dylan was grossly inappropriate? But if we look a little closer at this line from Wilkes' judgment, we'll find that the rule I've mentioned earlier continues to apply. The evidence against Alan in this case keeps looking less and less bad the closer you look at it. As we already know, Judge Wilk did not rule that sexual abuse had taken place. So when he said that Alan's conduct towards Dylan was grossly inappropriate, he obviously didn't mean to say that he had sexually abused her. So what did he mean to say? Wilk's grossly inappropriate line seems to have been largely inspired by the testimony of two people. One of them was Mia Farrow, and the other was Dylan's therapist, who had told the hearing that Alan's relationship with the child was, quote, inappropriately intense. But the therapist had been crystal clear about what she meant by that. I did not see it as sexual, she said of Alan's attachment to Dylan. I saw it as inappropriately intense because it excluded everybody else and it placed a demand on a child for a kind of acknowledgement that I felt should not be placed on a child. End quote. So, the same therapist who testified that Alan had an inappropriately intense emotional attachment to Dylan also explicitly testified that she didn't think Alan had sexually abused the child and didn't think his interest in her was sexual. And this is really the only part of this therapist's testimony that should be any of our business, the part where she says that there was no sexual interest and no sexual abuse. The rest, the stuff about the inappropriately intense emotional attachment, shouldn't be of interest to anybody beyond Alan's immediate family. And it's certainly not a remotely sufficient reason to purge the man from the cultural landscape forever. While I'm on the subject of legal talking points, I should go back to the quote I mentioned earlier from the Connecticut State's attorney, whose name was Frank Mako. Mako said that, even though he was dropping the case against Allen, he still believed that he had, quote, probable cause to prosecute him. This is another quote that Allen's enemies like to dredge up from the record when they're trying to make out that the case against him has some objective merit. But doesn't this sound like a fairly odd thing for a prosecutor to say when announcing that he won't be pursuing a case? In fact, it was more than odd. It was an outrageous thing to say, and Mako copped a roasting from legal ethicists for saying it. A professor at New York University Law School said at the time, quote, You don't declare the man guilty and then say you're not going to prosecute, leaving him to defend himself in the press. It's a violation of Allen's constitutional rights, in my view. I can't overemphasize how remarkable this is. End quote. Sadly, that's turned out to be a prophetic statement. To one degree or another, Woody Allen has been forced to try to defend himself in the press ever since Frank Mako declined to give him his day in court in 1993. Like Justice Wilkes' comment about Allen's grossly inappropriate conduct, Mako's probable cause remark loses its sting when we restore it to its proper context. In fact, Mako made the probable cause comment in a written statement in which he also quoted Wilkes' observation that a criminal prosecution of Allen was unlikely to succeed. Elsewhere in his statement, Mako admitted that standards of proof are tougher at a criminal trial than they are at a custody trial, and he observed that, quote, even Justice Wilk working in the framework of an evidentiary standard less severe than proof beyond a reasonable doubt, could not definitely conclude that sexual abuse had occurred. End quote. In other words, if Wilk couldn't conclude at a custody hearing that Dylan had been sexually abused, there was no way known that this could be proved beyond reasonable doubt at a criminal trial. If you read Mako's statement in full then, he sounds like a man who was having what we call in Australia a bet each way. Even as he claimed to have probable cause to prosecute Allen, he also effectively admitted that he didn't. Another thing to note about the remarks of Wilk and Mako is that both men were experts in the law, not experts in sexual abuse, 
and neither of them had nearly as much access as the Yale team did to the case's one and only alleged witness. Mako seems to have interviewed Dylan just once, while Wilk took no direct testimony from her. So again, you can't help noticing a bit of a theme here. The people who seem most suspicious of Alan are not the experts in child psychology who had the closest access to the best evidence. They always seem to be people who are at least one step away from knowing what they're talking about. Dylan Farrow has said she wishes that Mako had gone ahead and filed charges in 1993 so that she could have taken the stand at the time and told her story. But let's try a thought experiment. Let's imagine that Mako had done that. Let's imagine that Woody Allen had stood trial in 1993. We know almost for a fact that he wouldn't have been convicted. Once the Yale report was on the table, the prospect of a guilty verdict was practically zilch. Both Mako and Wilk effectively conceded this point at the time in their different ways. So, if Alan had been found not guilty, as he almost certainly would have been, would Dylan Farrow now be admitting that he indeed committed no crime? And would our culture be ready to admit that too? You'd certainly hope so, because a legal trial is the single best mechanism we have for determining the truth of a matter like this. But actually, we don't need to talk in hypotheticals or run thought experiments, because in the real world, Woody Allen has already gone one better than being found not guilty at a criminal trial. The evidence against him was so one-dimensional and so dubious that his case never even made it to trial. This is Allen's catch-22. He was never found guilty because he almost certainly wasn't guilty, but he was never found not guilty either because the evidence against him didn't even rise to the level where he could be charged with a crime. The case against him wasn't even serious enough to get thrown out of court because nobody was prepared to throw it into court in the first place, not even a prosecutor who clearly would have loved to take him down. The whole thing would be funny if it wasn't so deeply unfunny. So what exactly has happened since 1993 to put this case so firmly back on our cultural radar? Why is the world suddenly so full of people who are convinced that Woody Allen is guilty as hell? It's an interesting question, and I'll be trying to answer it next week in part two.